ahead and have a seat. Welcome to Village Church. If this is your first time here, my name is Steve. I'm one of the pastors here at Village Church. And as always, I am thankful and grateful to see each and every one of you. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Joshua 22. We're going to be covering that entire chapter this morning. Uh, the final three chapters of Joshua contain charges to the nation of Israel. So at the end of 21, they had rest from war, and they had driven out the people that had stood against them. They're now seeking to spread and take the territory of the promised land. And now in these three chapters are going to contain really three different charges to the people of the nation by which Joshua encourages and exhorts everyone in Israel to continue to maintain the faith that has brought them to where they are. They are to continue to live their lives under the lordship of God by seeking to obey his commands and show his glory to the entire world around them. Because that is the purpose for which God had given them the promised land. We've seen through the book that God is faithful to his promises, that he works for the good of his people, and the response to God's work must be one of submission. Your faith is actually going to be seen by your obedience to the calling of God in your life. Because you cannot show that God is the Lord of your life without living and building a life of willful obedience to Him. And that obedience, of course, reveals a dynamic faith that moves forward according to every call and every command that God has given. It's through building dynamic faith that we live the life that God has called us towards. But it is not about how showing great we are. It's not about how showing how pioneering you are. Rather, it is about showing the worth and the value of God in our lives. Your faith is only going to be as powerful as the one in whom that faith is anchored. And so now that Israel's in the promised land, it's being portioned out, they don't have to be at battle all the time, their faith is going to be revealed by their continued obedience to the call of God. Because God is explicit about what He wants from His people. I see people in life trying to follow God, trying to obey the commands that God has given, and I see people fail in two regards. The first one is just simple disobedience. It's not complicated at all. You sin because you are disobedient. You've given in to temptation. You believe something or someone more than you believe the voice of God in your life. But the second way that I see people fail is when they try to complicate the calling of God in their lives. It's when you seek to add to what God has commanded because you are convinced that your way is a little more streamlined than God's way. You're convinced that you have a more nuanced path maybe than God thought of when he gave his very simple commands. Because there are times in life when the best of intentions can lead to the worst of results. Because you even subconsciously think somehow you are more wiser than God. You think that you're just trying to help him out a little. You're trying to make him a little more palatable to other people. You think really you're trying to make him a little more palatable to yourself. And you think in a foolish way that you can somehow make his commands better. And such is the case of what we're going to deal with today with the decision that the leaders of Reuben, the leaders of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh tried to help their people but almost caused an all-out civil war within the nation of Israel. And so I want to begin reading in verses 1 through 9. And here's the charge that Joshua gives to these two and a half tribes. The text says that at that time Joshua summoned the Reubenites, the Gadites, the half-tribe of Manasseh, and said to them, 
You've kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and have obeyed my voice and all that I have commanded you. You've not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day, but have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore, turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Only be careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways, keep his commandments and to cling to them and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away and they went to their tents now to the one half of the tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given a possession in Bashan, but to the other half, Joshua had given a possession beside their brothers in the land west of the Jordan. And when Joshua sent them away to their homes and blessed them, he said to them, go back to your tents with much wealth and with much livestock, with much silver, gold, bronze, and iron, and with much clothing. Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brothers. So the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned home, parting from the people of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to which the land, to go rather, to the land of Gilead, their own land, of which they had possessed themselves by the command of the Lord through Moses. Number one this morning, you need to see that the reward for obedience is worth the sacrifice. The reward for obedience is worth the sacrifice. Here's a blanket rule of life that's very simple. Obedience leads to blessing. You need to realize that that is a natural law that God has given the way that the world works, but it's also a special revelation that God has given through his word. And he looks to these tribes and he says, you've been obedient, therefore enjoy the reward for your obedience. And he speaks directly to these two and a half tribes as they go back across the Jordan to the plains on the other side of the river where they had collectively decided that they would spend their days after the conquest of the promised land. Moses had given charge to these people. He had foreseen that possibly they were asking for that land so that they would not have to cross the Jordan, so that they would not have to fight the battles that stood before all of Israel. And Moses had commanded them and said, you must go with the nations, all the men of battle. And you must fight with your brothers to take the promised land. And only when rest is given by the Lord do you then have the ability to go back over. And it required faith for these men to do that. They had to leave their families for long periods of time in order to engage in battle, in order to be obedient to the calling of God in their lives. But they had done it. And now comes the time to which Joshua releases them. He says, now we've had rest from battle. Go back to the land. And because of the faith that you have exhibited through your action, God will bless you. He sends them back and he says, you're going to have plenty. The promises of God are yours. But note what Joshua also says. He says, do not become unfaithful. The only way, just so you know, a little secret tip, the only way to avoid being unfaithful is to be faithful. And so God tells them, be faithful to the promises of God. Keep the word of God in front of you. Love him and you love him by keeping his commandments and you keep his commandments by being faithful to everything that God has called you to. It is the actions of their faith that led to the reward of God and it would be their actions of faith that would continue that reward and continue the possession of that promise in their lives. 
Joshua says their land contained wealth because that was the reward that God had given them for their sacrifice. And I've said it many times. God sees the sacrifice that his people make to remain faithful to him in a world cursed by sin, and God blesses it. God always promises reward for those that are faithful to him. And so, a very simple principle, when you obey God, it is because you believe that faithfulness to him will be better than unfaithfulness. And the opposite of that is true. When you are unfaithful to God, you believe that your unfaithfulness will reap a greater reward than your faithfulness will. Two completely polar opposite realities, but not complicated at all, is it? Faithfulness and unfaithfulness both seek a reward even though those rewards are opposite and only one of those rewards will be true. Unfaithfulness to God, hear me, will never reap the reward of God no matter what you paint that up in. No matter what you excuse it by, no matter what issues you have in your life by which you think less faithfulness to God is required of you because you've had this happen in your life or because you've had that happen in your life or because this person hurts you over here or because you experienced this tragedy over there. God still looks to you and says, do you want my reward? Then be faithful to my commands. And when you go the path of unfaithfulness, you are thereby saying, I don't want the reward of God because I believe the reward of the world or the reward of someone in the world or the reward of something in the world is going to be better than that which God says I am designed to have in my life. And therefore, Joshua reminds these people that it is only ever going to be through their continued obedience that they were going to continue to experience the favor of God in their lives. Disobedience will never lead to the blessing of God. And we know that in theory. You'll agree with I've not said anything controversial. Oh, yeah, it's, it's biblical. Yeah, it's true. It's true. And some of you are going to go right out that door, and you are going to be as unfaithful as you can possibly be all week. And then if anybody has the audacity to call you on it, well, you just don't understand the things that I'm dealing with. You can be the biggest snowflake in the world. The rules aren't any different for you. You are not some unique particle in the universe that has reasons that are superior to everyone else's reasons. The same God that designed me is the same God that designed you. The same God that has commanded me is the same God that has commanded you. And I know your life may be different, but the calling of God is exactly the same. Your faith is exhibited through your obedience to the commands that he has given. And God is so gracious that he reveals what those commands are. And here's the key. God reveals his commands so that they can be obeyed. That's not crazy. That's reasonable. He doesn't give you commands so that you can disobey them. He doesn't give you a command so that it's some kind of trap. He doesn't bring a calling into your life and then laugh because there's absolutely no way you can live by his design. No. Every calling that God brings into your life is one by which he will give you the strength to live up to because of your faith in Jesus Christ. God's commands are not arbitrary. 
God's commands are always purpose-filled. They are always designed by Him to show His goodness through His people to the world around you. God has created everything. And because of that, He can be trusted to tell us how we are designed to live. And faith is always going to be revealed through submission to that reality. That's why this is a constant theme throughout the book of Joshua. That's why it's this constant theme throughout a book that's centered upon the idea of building dynamic faith in God and maintaining that faith over the long haul of life. In Joshua 1.8, he kicks off the book by both commanding obedience and defining the result of that obedience. He gives us the theme. He says, the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. If you do this, then you will have that. Is that complicated? It's difficult. I didn't say it was easy, but it certainly isn't complicated. If you want the promises of God, obedience will light the path towards them. But then in Joshua 5, 6, the opposite is explained. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. If you are unfaithful, you will not receive the promise. If you are unfaithful, the path to the promises of God will be dimmed for you. You won't see them. If you want the judgment of God, disobedience will obscure the path to his promises and lead you down the road of condemnation. God is not arbitrary. God graciously gives us his commands so that we will see the path that leads to his glory. The path to God's kingdom is faith that is revealed through obedience. There's no other way. Disobedience never leads to blessing. But you will try to convince yourself of that. All of you will at some point or another. You will try to convince yourself that your situation is so unique that you have to go into sin just a little bit more so that you can get the promise of God. That's unreasonable. It doesn't even make sense. And it's not going to work out. You want instant gratification and you believe somehow God is holding out on you because he's not delivering his promise fast enough or he's taken something away that you wish he hadn't taken away. And you believe that that excuses you to be unfaithful to God in some way. And so you start to reason it out. I deserve better. You start to reason it out. I should have more. We have a society now that is hell-bent on giving ourselves therapy all the way to the gates of hell. We don't want to repent. We want some type of therapy to explain why we are sinners. Friends, I can save you a lot of money. You sin because you're a sinner. All right? Here's the deal. I watch YouTube with my kids sometimes, and I hate the ads, but I'm unwilling to pay to get rid of them. (laughs) And somehow through something that I've said, because Big Brother's always listening, or something that I've typed in this 
commercial for this online therapy has started popping up, or maybe it's the voice of God telling me I need something. I don't know. (laughs) But on one of the commercials, the girl was like, you know, I've had such a great relationship with my therapist for the past five years, and I just laughed. And I said, they saw you coming, sister. You built her a big house, I bet. They've been billing you and billing you and billing you. There are some truths in therapy. All of them happen to be from God's word. But the reality is, is that the reason that we are so committed to a life of seeking the therapeutic for our sin, and it is because we are unwilling to make the changes that God has been clear that we need to make. Friend, the reason that you can't find help to solve your problems is because you're looking in the wrong place. You're looking for the answer in unfaithfulness when God says the answer is only ever going to be found in faithfulness that promotes a life of obedience to him. Is how Jesus put it in Matthew 7, 21. This is the human dilemma, I believe. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who what? Does the will of my Father who is in heaven. The fact of our world is many people want the blessing of God, but it is only those that submit to the will of God that will ever reap God's blessings. No one, friends, understand this, will ever walk the path of continual disobedience and see the kingdom of heaven. It will never happen. It is only those that believe to the point of trusting Jesus with the design for their lives that will inherit the kingdom of heaven and thus his blessings both in this life and in the eternity that is to come. And so secondly... The story gets interesting because we have this great charge. And it's like, if I was writing the book of Joshua, I would have stopped at verse 9 and I would have said, 22 is done. But of course, we have the human element. The prophecy comes from God. You've been faithful, reap the reward, continue to be faithful, you will continue to reap the reward. And I love the way these narratives happen because they don't tell us really the gap of time that takes place between what Joshua says and what happens next. All that it does is it ends Joshua's speech and then immediately says they're unfaithful. And it's so fascinating because it's almost this perpetual cycle. And I get very judgmental on the people of Israel because I'm like, don't they know that this never ends well? And then I consider my life and I need to look in the mirror and say, don't I know that this never ends well? But yet here we are putting ourselves in front of the same temptations over and over. And it's insane because we think giving in to the same temptation is somehow going to reap a different reward next time. It's only ever going to reap bad things in my life because God has not designed for me to live that way. But look at what happens. Starting in verse 10. And when they came to the region of the Jordan, that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the original language, that just means it's a big old altar. And the people of Israel heard it said, Behold, the the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. Don't you just wish they'd just sat on the other side of the river? And when the people of Israel heard it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. I think it's a fascinating narrative. 
Because we're very quick to almost excuse it to say that seems like an overreach. But it's not. Skip down to verse 16. The people have gathered and they're now accusing these two and a half tribes. Verse 16, thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, what is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord. And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. But now, if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take for yourselves a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, break faith in the matter of the devoted things and wrath fell upon the whole congregation of Israel and he did not perish alone for this iniquity. And so the congregation gathers, and we know from the verses previous and just post this, that the priest Phinehas went with them. And they make this accusation, they look to them and they say, you have breached the faith because you have built an altar in the area that God says you cannot build an altar. And the way that we know this is because in Deuteronomy 12, 13 through 14, the text tells us, Moses is writing, he says, take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that the Lord will choose in one of the tribes, there you shall offer your burnt offerings offerings and there you shall do all that I am commanding you. God would tell them, you cannot worship me wherever, however you want. I have designated that my presence is in the tabernacle. And at this point in Israel, it was in the promised land. And God had said, that's the only place that I want you to make sacrifices. And for whatever reason, the two and a half tribes had built this imposing altar on the other side of the river. The nation of Israel comes to them and says, your reasons don't matter. You have done something that is against the Lord. And number two, understand what God demands is more important than what you intend. What God demands is more important than what you intend. We live in a culture right now that will try to condition you to understand that intentions matter more than actions. It's not true. It's not true at all. Your actions matter. And so very quickly in our culture, what we do is, is we'll see somebody commit some type of heinous sin. We'll see somebody commit absolutely wicked sin that hurts other people, tears other people down, ruins God's design, creates victims. And we will try to give that person therapy because the reasons why they did it matter more than why they did it. Ask the victims if that's true. The content of what you do always matters to God. Your intentions are not lords that must be submitted to. Some of you believe that you are condemned to just follow whatever motivates you day by day. However I feel, if I feel this way, I do that. If I feel that way, I do that. I'll get around to obeying God when I feel like it. You're creating a false God. 
And that false God is your feelings. Your feelings do not trump the commands of God. It doesn't take long, as I said, it seems by the narrative's chronology, for things to go off the rails with these two and a half tribes. The narrative purposefully reads as though it all took place soon because it teaches us something about the human condition. God calls us to faithfulness, but we have this default mode that always tends towards sinning against God. Ultimately, we know that the power of the Spirit in our lives through our faith in Jesus Christ is more powerful than any temptation that's going to be coming into our path. Yet, I can only assume that every single person gathered here has some type of issue in your life where you see a perpetual pattern of sin and you don't know how to walk away from it. And the answer is never going to be to make yourself feel better about your unfaithfulness to say things like, well, I meant well. That's what we'll do because we want to excuse ourselves. God would tell them, you're supposed to sacrifice here, but they want to sacrifice over there. Now, we can only assume because the text doesn't really tell us a clear picture of why they did it. But my assumption is, is that it began with just geographical ease. It's not easy to get across the Jordan River. And this points us to something that had happened earlier with these two and a half tribes and that Moses had made a concession and a compromise. God did not call them to that side of the Jordan River. God had called them all to the promised land, but these two and a half tribes, they really liked it on that side of the river. And they looked to Moses before he died and they said, just let us settle here before we ever go over. And we know that the narrative, and I've talked about it earlier in the book, but Moses looks to them and he perceived what they were trying to do, and that was that they didn't want to fight in Canaan. So Moses looked at him and he said, look, if you want to stay here, I'll let you stay here. But God says, you've still got to go fight. And they had been faithful to that. But they had removed themselves from the promised land. They were settling on the other side of the Jordan. And very quickly they settled into a leisurely life by which they didn't want to have to go over the river for their worship. It's my assumption the text is not clear on that. But it does show us something about the human condition. Because word reaches the rest of the nation and they're taking it very seriously where we might actually excuse their actions. Their perceived disobedience, as I said, almost brings all out civil war because this is no small offense. But our modern sensibilities, I think, often struggle to comprehend this. Oftentimes I'll see people that are reading Old Testament narrative and they'll see God bring great judgment onto people for their sin. And they'll be like, was it really a big deal? I mean, isn't God kind of overreacting? I can tell you very clearly, that's never the voice of the Holy Spirit in your life. <laughs> that's the voice of sinful flesh. Because you know that your sins are even worse than that. And so we tried to kind of bring God down to a level where he would respond the same way that we would respond. And he would listen. Well, why were you unfaithful? OK, well, I understand. Well, don't do that again. The way some of you parent. How's that working out? And our culture, many of us are conditioned to seek to empathize with the guilty more than we understand the wrath of the authority. And that is not to our benefit. 
Scripture treats the worship of God as a serious issue. Here's what you need to receive from this. God is not to be worshipped however you see fit. We want everything to be built around our preferences, our personalities, our love languages, whatever it is. But the foundation for worship is not about what you prefer, nor is it even about what you are comfortable with. The foundation of worship in Scripture is about the object of worship. If God is worthy to be worshipped, then you must form your worship around His preferences before you ever take into consideration your own. And that's why I think this text gives us an amazing principle. And that is that we must always be open to correction from the wisdom of leaders. And I can tell you that's a tough issue for me because I'm a leader in the church. And sometimes I have to correct people. And sometimes you're really great about it. You're like, oh, okay, I understand. And sometimes you're just so mean. Sometimes you don't receive the correction very well at all. And typically, I don't want to correct anybody. I, you have no idea how apathetic I am about your lives. I'm not looking for anybody to correct. I just want to be left alone most of the time. But God's given me a word, and his word is clear, and his word is true. And if you go outside of the bounds of what God has called you towards, or what God has called his church towards, what's well, the responsibility of the pastors to kind of insert ourselves in what we hope will be a helpful way? And I love it when God brings our hearts together and repentance comes out, and we can join together in unity. And I hate it. When God gives us the wisdom of his word and you reject the clear counsel of God's word. Because it's only pride that ever leads you there and pride is the foundation of bad worship. Keep in mind that this is a nation that had experienced the severity of God's judgment for sin. And the sin of those within the camp, they mentioned two instances in the passage that we've read. They first mentioned the sin of Peor. And I didn't read the text that says that Phinehas the priest was with them. We'll get to that in a minute. But Phinehas the priest is with them. And I think it's because he was specifically involved in what happened of the judgment of God at the sin at Peor. Because the nation of Israel during their time of wandering had gone into a land where Baal was being worshipped. And some of the men of Israel began mixing with the women of this pagan nation to the extent where they were having sexual relations that were actually involved in the worship of Baal. And so God sends a plague of sickness to the nation of Israel. And people are getting very ill and people are dying. And God goes to Moses and he says, this is what is happening and you must lead the people to repent of it. And as this is going on, somehow, the text is very unclear in Numbers 25 of how they knew that this was going on. But a man of Israel flagrantly and flamboyantly grabs one of the foreign women and goes into his chamber to engage in relations. And God looks to Phinehas and points it out. And here's what Phinehas does. I wanted to go on Etsy and get this done in some great calligraphy. This is one of my favorite Bible verses. And I wanted to put it on the wall of our dining room. And my wife said, no. <laughs> Pray for her. It's God's word. 
When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation, took a spear in his hand, and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman through their belly. Now, I'll leave it up to your imagination why they would be in that position. Thus, the plague of the people of Israel was stopped. God does not trifle with sin. Why do you? The Lord was pleased by what Phinehas did. How do I know that? Because he stopped the plague. What Phinehas did was good. And so it's important to understand that Phinehas is here and he is not what many of you might envision of a priest. And all his priestly guard, his very soft hands, his quivering little voice. Now, Phinehas is a killer, all right? He can throw a spear with accuracy. Two with one is a great deal every time, all right? So Phinehas is not a figure that anyone wanted to trifle with, and I think that's why they sent him specifically. But the problem that many of us face in our culture is that we want to worry about our intentions above everything else. Friends, no, if you have sin in your life, you do have to deal with the motivation for that sin. But the reason you deal with the motivation is so that you can repent, not so that you can feel better about your sin. Yes. It is never an adequate excuse. You deal with the disobedience Regardless of the reasons, as been said many times, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Also keep in mind, this is why leaders exist. Even if the intentions of these tribes were good and what they did, they needed the correction of their leaders to both inform and humble them to learn. So often in our belligerence, the wisdom of those that know better is ignored to our ruin. When you begin to defend yourself by saying foolish things like, well, they don't understand me. Well, they don't know why I did what I did. Certainly they might not, may not know why, but the why is never what's going to kill you. It's the what. And sometimes you need to humble yourself to listen to people who've been down the road a little further, who might have a little more wisdom than you and all of your godness may have. Friends, God gives us the wisdom of leaders to learn a better way. Stop assuming you know more than leaders. I've been wrong enough in my life and had it pointed out by enough leaders to know that is just simply not true. You need the wisdom of leaders in your life because that is what leads to repentance. And that's what leads us to number three. God desires unity around his commands. God desires unity around his commands. Look at the way the text continues in verse 21. Then the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, the mighty one, God, the Lord, the mighty one, God, the Lord, he knows. And let Israel itself know if it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from, content, from, excuse me, from following the Lord. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. No, but we did it from fear that in time 
time to come, your children might say to our children, What have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between you, excuse me, us and you, you people of Reuben and people of Gad. You have no portion in the Lord. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore we said, Let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering, nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you, and between our generations after us, that we do perform the service of the Lord in His presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings, so your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And what then happens is they defend themselves and say, well, we weren't building it so that we can offer sacrifices on it. It's pretty weak. If you build a grill, you tend to want to make burgers. But the nation looks and they come up with this contrived reasoning where they say, we weren't building it to make sacrifices because we know that sacrifices can only be made in the presence of the Lord in the tabernacle. We were actually doing it so that in generations to come, our nation, our tribes rather, won't forget who they are, and your tribes will have a monument by which they can look to and not exclude our children from worship based on geography that we're on the other side of the Jordan River. And this is where we begin to complicate things over and over because the simplest answer to this would have been for these two and a half tribes to actually settle in the promised land. And so you see that once you begin to compromise one thing, what happens? You begin to make decisions that lead to compromise here, that lead to compromise there, that lead to more and more compromise. And before you know it, you're accusing people that come to you and say, hey, I think what you're doing is not a good thing. And you're like, oh, yeah, well, my children. It's like, what? They didn't even bring up your kids. Phinehas looks to them and says, all right. If you guys aren't going to make sacrifices on there, there will be no war. But note that the unity that the nation experienced after this day for a period was built on this nation continuing in obedience. The problem that we have in our culture and even in the church today is that we believe that the first half of my third point is true. God desires unity. And so we will use that fact as an excuse to look at people in a soft-handed way and say, just be united with me. Don't be so judgmental. The second half of the command is what brings unity. God doesn't just desire unity. God desires a specific kind of unity. And the unity that God desires of his people is a unity around the truth of his word. God isn't looking for any old unity that we're going to throw down the pipe. God is looking for a unity around his commands because it begins with the very fact that there is only one God that gives the commands. The whole nation of Israel was built around one principle that everything else emerged from. Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's only one God. Therefore, anything that would lead astray from that one God must be rejected, even if it threatens unity. 
Because without the truth of God, unity is sinful. The problem so many of you had is you're trying to experience unity with sinful people. And you can't do it. It will never work. Unity only exists within the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because God has spoken. Therefore, his people must go the direction of his voice. As I said, unity can very quickly become an idol that excuses sin. And it was not the other nine and a half tribes that threatened the unity of Israel. It was the two and a half tribes that made a foolish decision without consulting the priesthood about it. The nine and a half tribes were the ones that were seeking true unity. Sin is always what brings disunity. It's never seeking righteousness that causes disunity. And when you think in your life when your sin is exposed or when someone comes to you and confronts you with your sin and you look at them and say, I just want unity. Don't be so judgmental. You're the one promoting disunity by not dealing with your sin. As Joshua twenty two thirty one states, today we know that the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. If it is God who brings unity, then in this text, the statement is made, when you obey God, that is the only source of real unity. Because it is God that is the first offended at sin, and it is only through purging sin that unity can be formed under the lordship of God. This is the same message from Philippians 1.27. The Apostle Paul writes, he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear you, excuse me, hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for faith of the gospel. Before Paul ever mentions unity, he states that the foundation of it is a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. He's talking about the obedience that you must have to the commands of God. Friends, unity in the gospel requires two things that this passage shows us. First, it requires the truth of the gospel that we find in God's word. If you promote lies or error, then you are bringing disunity. Not the ones that expose lies. The ones that expose lies and seek sound doctrine are the ones that are forming real unity. But secondly, it requires obedience to God's commands. I will tell you, some of you are giving in to sin. Some of you are living unrighteous lives. There is wickedness being covered in your life. And you are angry at everyone else because you don't feel united with them. Friends, I will tell you, the best decision that you can make today is repent of your sin, trust the gospel, and go to those people and seek real unity through repentance. Not theirs, yours. Yes. They're not the ones being judgmental. You are. Judge with righteous judgment is what God said. This is how you stand firm in one spirit and one mind. It's always about Jesus. It's about his truth. It's about his lordship. That is how we flourish. And that is how we are united in reaching the world with the gospel. 
A few application points this morning. First, seek the reward through faithful obedience. If you want the reward of God, faithful obedience is the path. Turn from your sin, whatever it is. Whatever it is. God knows what it is. Turn from it today. What are you waiting for? Secondly, build a life on obedience and your intentions will follow. Some of you are lorded over by your intentions and you think you can only give your life, get your life right when you feel like it. Start obeying and your heart's going to get there eventually. Amen. That's the way it works out. Thirdly, humble yourself to be correctable when you're proven wrong. It takes great humility and it's only the gospel that humbles you through faith that you're going to have that type of humility. But when you're proven wrong... Throw your defenses down. It's over. Be vulnerable enough to admit it. Be vulnerable enough in the gospel to repent. And that is where you'll find forgiveness. And that is where you'll find the life that God has waiting for you. Fourthly, unite around the gospel above all. There's many different types of unity you can find. There's only one that's worth anything. And that's unity around the gospel of Jesus Christ. 